Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. The Spectator's look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the pages of the magazine. I'm Katie Balls. This week... Will society ever fully reopen after coronavirus? Or is the expansion of government power too difficult to reverse? Plus, is negotiating a Scottish independence deal the best way to save the union? And finally, is something untoward happening in Britain's graveyards? First up, in this week's cover piece, Johan Norberg argues that coronavirus risks ushering in a new era of big government. He joins me now with Gerard Baker, editor-at-large at the Wall Street Journal. Johan, in this week's cover piece in The Spectator, you write that liberal democracies are falling into a coronavirus trap. What is the trap? Well, any time that there is a major crisis in society, we have this tendency to um, look to a strong man or big government to protect us against it. And this has not been an exception. Uh, the only thing is that it's been much more dramatic than we've ever seen before, I would say, in peaceful uh, times in, in liberal democracies. We've seen an unprecedented expansion of government power. And it has happened quickly, without much of debate, without any kind of cost-benefit analysis. We've shut down borders, societies stopped businesses from being allowed to carry on business. And we've even seen peaceful strollers and joggers tracked by drones and stopped by policemen. I, I fear that if this can happen this quickly, this dramatically, it could take us a long time to get back to normal. And it says something about what could happen the next time around as well. In the piece, you mentioned that Milton Friedman used to warn nothing is so permanent as a temporary government programme. How do you think this bears relevance to what we are currently seeing? Because governments have given different reasons for lockdown and at times it seems those reasons have changed. Yeah, they changed quickly. It, it used to be said that we needed to shut things down just to buy some time for the health services to prepare. But when when we've done that, we had to flatten the curve, so they had to stay in place, and then we flattened the curve. And despite that, the restrictions, they don't just stay in place, they've been reinforced. And this tells us something about the path dependence that there is when we expand governments like this. In a classic work on uh, government expansion, Robert Higgs, uh, he wrote Crisis and Leviathan, he talked about a ratchet effect. Every time that we have a major crisis, government expands, they get new powers. But after the crisis is done, they only return some of the powers and some of the money to the citizens. Lots of it stays, so we have a more permanent expansion afterwards. There are several reasons why this is the case. One of them being is that we've just set new precedents. So politicians think that they can do more things than they used to. But also that we build new uh, constituencies who fight for their uh, the resources they get or the power they get. Look, for example, in Britain at the backlash to keep the furlough scheme almost for eternity or, or, or working from home. It's difficult to take these things back once you've got them. Gerard, in his piece, Johan cites a statistic that half the world's population was under curfew at some point during the lockdown. Do you think of hindsight that was necessary? No, I think um, I 
greatly appreciated Johan's piece. I think it was very, very insightful. And uh, as he says, the history of major government programs tends to be that they stick. No, I, I, I think it's becoming increasingly clear. And, and to be fair, a lot of people said so at the time, although given the uncertainties associated with COVID, it was, it was never possible to be really as confident as we would like to be, despite what was widely said in the media at the time with it, and widely stressed with such great confidence. But it is becoming increasingly obvious, I think, that the lockdown was absolutely disproportionate to the actual threat that COVID-19 um, uh, posed. And, you know, one of the most interesting illustrations of that just recently is there was a piece published in my newspaper uh, just yesterday, actually, by an economist uh, who actually looks at, in, in real detail, that assembled a data set of essentially economic activity in across the United States and in other countries too, actually, and and looked at what happened, relative and, and compared states that had had extreme lockdowns with states that had really had a relatively mild touch. The extreme lockdowns had almost no effect, uh, extent to which there was the, the virus spread. On the flip side, where there was very little lockdown, where there was very little restriction, where there was very little a diminution in activity that didn't result in any higher level of spread either. So I think we are really, really getting evidence now that all of this, these measures were completely disproportionate to the scale of the threat. Johan, in your piece, you talk about, I suppose, in a way, what coronavirus has allowed governments to do. And you say it gave you know leaders in China and Iran and Turkey the perfect excuse to monitor citizens' movements through their mobile phones. But we've also seen moves in liberal democracies. So why do you think it is that liberal democracies have taken this route and are, are still doing that? Yeah, this is the thing that really worries me, because we always knew that dictatorships and authoritarians, they would use any crisis to expand their powers. But the most surprising thing, I think, is the extent to which it has happened in, in liberal democracies. We saw the, the early British attempt to suck up private data from people's uh, cell phones only stopped because big data didn't want to comply. We had, we've talked a lot about Viktor Orban in Hungary and his um, right to rule by decree. But actually in Sweden, in my country, our our very moderate social democratic government also asked for emergency powers to bypass parliament. So we've seen these things happening there as well. And I think that is in a way a response to a popular demand. Whenever there is a crisis, you want to show that you're on top of things. We tend to have this kind of uh, societal fight or flight instinct. People want to flee from the problems. They want to be protected by uh, big government. And that happens in democracies as well as dictatorships. It was, after all, H.L. Mencken who said the, uh, he joked that the goal of any kind of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamoring for safety. And I think that's what we saw initially in democracies as well. And you know, just I suppose the counter is that if we look at the death tolls we've had in certain countries, uh, I mean, here in the UK, over 40,000, what do you say to those that would make the argument, which is ultimately, in order to prevent that number going up considerably more, we are going to have to just live with limits on our personal liberties? Well, first of all, there is disagreement on this among the scientists, because Many think that there is no way to escape the pandemic. There is no way to escape those deaths. The only thing that happens when we lock down societies is that we postpone them 
for a while. And then later on, when we begin to open up, we'll see a second wave. And that's what we're seeing on the European continent now. They thought that they were out of it because death tolls and, and the transmission has, had come down. But the moment they opened up, they saw the second wave and perhaps a second lockdown as well. And no society can stay shut until we have a vaccine because that could be many, many months away because there's also another cost. Uh, there's a cost to, to human liberties, but also to the society, to the economy. When kids stay away from school, they lose out long-term as well in opportunities in life. Uh, when the economy cannot produce, we do not get the resources to uh, get money to the healthcare system, to long-term development of innovation in, in drugs and uh, healthcare technologies and, and things like that. So we would have to look at this more long-term as well, I think. Gerard, if we're looking at the what the post-coronavirus consensus is going to be, we're already seeing what lots of countries are doing, the fact that they are still you know, keeping quite a lot of these sweeping powers in place. Do you think that the consensus is going to be, you know, big government and major state intervention just becoming the new norms? Well, I'd say two, I think two things. There, Obviously, we're in the very early stages of understanding how this pandemic is going to change the way our societies work. But I think two things stand out to me, picking up from what Johanna said and written in particular. The first is that, you know, it, it is it is striking to me that this is a an exercise has been in many respects an exercise in political control in um, centralization of power in a rebalancing of the power between the state and the individual and the private sector very much as Johannes talked about and it's no accident here at all we shouldn't be you know we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that this is some sort of scientifically driven process it is in very large part a politically driven process particularly true here in the united states you know and and to and to test that the acid test of that is if i know your views on topics such as brexit what you think of donald trump um, what you think of, um, you know, Israel and Palestine, uh, what you think of, um, you know, major social issues, I can predict with almost 100% certainty what your views will be on whether or not there should be a lockdown, um, a comprehensive lockdown in New York or Florida or somewhere else. It's quite remarkable. There is a, a an almost 100% fit between people essentially who favor an activist interventionist role for the government uh, and those who think there is a major threat from uh, surprise surprise think there's a major threat from COVID and therefore we need that role so so it is I think without kind of you know wishing to suggest this is a kind of conspiracy there is just no question that if you favor all of the things that the left have typically favored uh, then you almost certainly are on the side of you know very tight lockdown so I think that's the first thing the second big consequence of this I think which we are really only beginning to understand I do think, and partly because of that first point, I think there's a larger structural way in which this epidemic, this pandemic is going to impact our politics. I do think it's going to have the effects, you know, contrary to the wishes and the objectives of those who have been behind so much of this lockdown. I think it's going to simply add fuel to the populist flames because I think not only because there will be some, there is a lot of revulsion at the extent to which our lives have been controlled by central government but the pandemic and the measures taken to um uh, to measures taken in the last six months have 
almost all of them had the effect of intensifying the trends, the political trends, the economic trends and social trends that were in place over the last decade or so that drove the populist backlash in the first place. If you look at, you know, we are seeing a, a dramatic intensification of power and concentration of power in the hands of um, the elites as a result of this lockdown. And that by that, I mean, not just government elites and, you know, the ability to control our lives and the way Johan has talked about, but corporate elites. Take, take for example, what's happening, you know, to the, to the global economy, very, very much exemplified by what's going on in the U.S. The power in the, in the U.S. economy has shifted dramatically, it's been going on for a long time, but it's been accelerated dramatically during the pandemic power towards the big tech companies. But power within businesses is concentrating too. It's very striking. You know, companies are now here in the US, I'm sure it's true in Europe too, uh, are now saying, look, people don't bother to come to work again. People can work from home. They're not going to come back to work until next spring now. We're talking about maybe even next summer. Many companies are talking about July 2021. One, I think hidden consequence of this, and it's not lost on the people who are doing this, is that that will be, when, when, when people are remote, when people are working from home and unable to collectivize and to organize themselves and to meet other people and to meet their peers, they are much more easy to control and much more easy to, to keep, you know, essentially under the thumb of the of the people who run those businesses. It's no accident, I think, again, that you're seeing that process play out too. So not only will certain companies, large companies gain more power, not only does government gain more power, elites gain more power, but also even within organizations, the leaders of those organizations are gaining more power. And I just can't help but think all of this is going to fuel, even, you know, after a while, even more of the populist backlash that we've seen in the last five years with Brexit and Trump and the, the rise of the populist right uh, in Europe. I think this is going to be a major political accelerant to that process. Finally, Johan, you write that you think greater protectionism looks inevitable in the West after coronavirus. But your latest book is called Open. Uh, you, you argue that free societies and free markets are the best drivers of prosperity. Do you hold out much hope that things could change or or do you think that coronavirus means that what you previously wrote about just just isn't so feasible these days well it remains to be seen and the book it's not just about openness it's also and how we create progress it's also about how we destroy it once in a while unfortunately by undermining open societies and free markets and uh, what i pointed out in my book is that it often happens in times of crisis that's when we are looking for that government protection, which ironically undermines the, the creation of, of progress and wealth long term. And I think there will be a long term, unfortunately, lag uh, just because of things that have been done so far. We've seen that 20 big economies uh, around the world have now will spend more than $5,000 billion in direct fiscal stimulus. And that will remain with us as debt for the long term. We'll see a push for more of self-sufficiency and trade barriers. And that will result, I think, in less competitiveness and therefore less uh, less competitive pressure. And that will translate into less growth and less innovation long term. So that will stay with us. I think that we can still deal with it because the powers of, of entrepreneurship and innovation, they're great. But as I end my piece uh, with a warning that these things happened, even though COVID-19, this pandemic is, despite all its horrors, 
it is a small pandemic by historical measures. Uh, we still have a death toll globally that's smaller than the Hong Kong flu of 1968. Back, and, and back then we had no lockdown almost anywhere in the world. And that tells you something about how we overreact nowadays. And what I fear is that next time around we might face a, a worse pandemic or another devastating crisis. And the question is, which civil and economic liberties are we willing to sacrifice then? There is that risk that we will undermine openness even more the next time around unless we deal with this. Thank you, Johan. Thank you, Gerard. Now, could hammering out the details of Scottish independence help keep the United Kingdom together? That's what James Forsyth argues in this week's magazine. He joins me alongside Alex Massey, the Spectator's Scotland editor. So, James, in this week's Spectator, in the politics column, you write about Scottish independence. Just to recap listeners, ultimately what we've seen happen is independence is consistently on the rise in polls. Professor John Curtis has pointed to this. And the SNP appear to be on course to win a majority in next year's Scottish Parliament elections, at which point, as we've heard from Nicola Sturgeon this week, they would push for a second independence referendum, which could be harder for Westminster to say no. However, Boris Johnson has implied and suggested he would just say no. So what are you suggesting he does instead? So Namatan's line is that they would just, as you say, just say no, even if the SNP won a majority at Hollywood. I think some of those in government who think most deeply about the union are beginning to worry about how sustainable this position is. The worry that one person has outlined to me is every time Westminster says no, support for independence goes up by a point or so. And then you risk reaching a tipping point where sport for independence hits 60% and it begins to feel inevitable. And any referendum when it comes would feel like a confirmatory referendum rather than actual debate. So one rather high risk uh, idea that I float in this week's magazine is that the government responds by saying to Nicola Sturgeon, yes, you can have a second independence referendum, but only on the terms of a deal. The vote's not going to be on the idea of independence but the reality of it. And so the UK government would sit down to negotiate with the SNP the terms of Scotland's departure from the Union. Now, this wouldn't be a quick exercise. Untangling a 300-year-old political, economic and military union would make Brexit look like Charles play. There would not be a referendum in this Westminster Parliament because the deal would simply not be done in time. But I think the advantage for the union side is it would concentrate the debate on the realities of independence. What currency would an independent Scotland use? What access would it have to the Bank of England? What would the trading relationship be between Scotland and the rest of the UK? You know, the countries would not be in the same customs union anymore. Indeed, if Scotland wanted to join the EU, as the SNP says that it does, you know, that would mean cons- uh, considerable trade friction at the border. And I think that what you would do is you would take the question from independence from being an abstract one to being about the realities of it. And I think that I think of two things. One in Australia in the late 90s, there was definitely majority support for a republic. But what there wasn't was majority support for the, any particular version of a republic. The opinion was split about what kind of republic it should be. I think the same might be true in Scotland about independence. And I also think back to a, to a blog that Dominic Cummings wrote in the lead run-up to the 2016 Brexit referendum campaign. when He said the Leave side mustn't embrace a particular version of Brexit because that would risk fracturing its own internal coalition. And I think the same applies to Scottish nationalists today because I think there's a massive divergence of opinion about what the point of independence is. And I think if you had the negotiation ahead of the referendum, you would bring that out. Alex, it's certainly a novel idea. What do you make of it? 
Well, yes, I mean, uh, it has. It is intriguing, and as you as you say, it it has. James's column raises, you know, an interesting number of questions, and it does have the singular merit of being a genuinely new idea in an argument that has been rather short on new ideas and fresh thinking for quite some time now. It is clearly an extremely high-risk option. The feeling in, in Downing Street is, as far as I can tell, and certainly is the view amongst, say, Conservatives and other Unionists in Scotland, is that the, the, the only way to win this fight is to refuse to have it. But as James suggests, if the SNP were to, to win a majority at the next year's elections, or if the Scottish, next Scottish Parliament has a pro-independence majority, which seems highly probable at present, then, you know, the question of how long can you just ignore the question? How long can you sort of punt it down the line and hope something turns up to resolve it in your favour? Now, I mean, that is clearly the government's preferred option right now, but it is subject to the laws of diminishing returns, it seems to me. Uh, and so what do you replace it with? And so the, James's idea is intriguing and very interesting, but I suspect we would find that it will be considered too risky because if you negotiate a deal then you are already sort of halfway towards independence you are normalising the idea and if you then put it to the people in a, in a referendum there would have I think to be a significant possibility that regardless of the detail and you know many of the, many of the details would be difficult for an independent Scotland but regardless of the detail I think you might have a sense whereby people would feel well this is going to happen one day anyway and so we might as well get on with it now and that could be quite a powerful force I think on public opinion and so you know I suspect that this idea interesting as it is will prove to be a, a, a step too far a gamble too far for the UK government. James in your piece you mentioned that by a margin of 10% Scottish voters believe independence would be an economic benefit to the country and I suppose one of the arguments in, in your piece is also by going through this process the reality to be laid bare and perhaps from this reality to be that it would not be of economic benefit. But isn't there a risk that no matter what is decided, people just say, oh, project fear, and if we actually do it, they'll change things. They're not being serious about the settlement. I think, weirdly enough, I mean, that poll finding that by a 10% margin, Scots think that independence would be good for the economy is actually slightly encouraging for the unionist side. It suggests that if they can land the, the economic argument, they could change some of those numbers. And I think one of the things that leaves a lot of people in Westminster scratching their heads is that the economic case now is so much weaker than it was in 2014. In 2014, you just had to believe that Scotland would be able to get into the EU quickly. And that in those circumstances, there would be minimal disruption to trade because the customs union and the single market would take care of that. And the oil price was much higher in 2014 than it was today. I mean, the price of a barrel of oil today is half what it was on the day that that referendum was held in 2014. And I think that this exercise would make people face up to economic realities because that there is an element right now where the SNP just answer with, oh, that would all change, or oh, they'd have to let the uh, let us use the pound because of Trident, or something like that. The actually having a deal would flesh that out and it would make clear what 
our UK would be prepared to do or not do in terms of, you know, and I think this is the currency point is, is less important than having access to a central bank. Why have countries been able to borrow so much during this COVID crisis? Because they have their own central banks. Under the 2014 SNP plan for independence, Scotland would not have had its own central bank. So who would have been buying up all this Scottish government debt during this crisis, for example? And I think that forcing people to concentrate on the details and the realities of independence might actually be the way to make the economic argument land without people just saying, oh, it's Project Fear 2. Alex, do you agree with what James is saying? Do you think by forcing these details you could change opinions? Uh, obviously, it'd be different to the Brexit vote in the sense there would be an actual deal. But we did see with the EU vote plenty of arguments ultimately suggesting it wouldn't be an economic benefit to leave the EU, and yet here we are. Well, indeed, exactly. Um, I think one of the difficulties with this suggestion is that, you know, to make the unionist argument, basically you have to agree a deal that is very bad for Scotland <laughs> uh, in the event of uh, were the people to, to endorse independence. And so then the negotiations take on a slightly different character. They become, if you like, a kind of sort of punishment beating for Scotland. And I think it is quite difficult to to then run a pro-union campaign on the back of that. That, you know, look how difficult it will be, look how expensive it will be, look at how much taxes will have to increase just to maintain current levels of spending, or alternatively, obviously, look how much current levels of spending will have to be cut to match current levels of taxation revenue. Uh, and, and so, you know, you're, you're in this situation where I think that it becomes very difficult to, to win a happy victory for unionism in those circumstances. Now, James is absolutely right that the economic argument for independence, or at least for the first five, ten years of, an, of the new independent state, it doesn't add up at present. I mean, it would be extremely painful, extremely difficult, extremely complicated. And the smarter kind of Scottish nationalist accepts that, and the rare, honest kind of Scottish nationalist will admit that in public. But the economic argument is only one uh, aspect of this whole issue. You know, you have the political argument and you have the cultural argument as well. Now, while the economic case for independence is certainly weaker than it was in 2014, the political argument post-Brexit is uh, more straightforward, I think is an easier sell to people in Scotland. And the cultural argument is, is also increasingly powerful, I think, for the SNP. You have a Conservative government led by a particular a kind of prime minister who is not popular in Scotland. We're heading for you know 15 years of conservative uh, rule in Westminster. The argument that you know however difficult independence would be, at least you know we would always get the governments that we voted for has a degree of extra salience, I think, and cuts through, I think, in those circumstances. And so you know th these these things, the cultural and political arguments, are somewhat aligned against unionism at the moment, even if the economic argument is rather more strongly in its favour than was the case in 2014. But as you correctly point out, Katie, you know, economics are not everything. Politics and culture matters just as much, you know, and if that was true in the Brexit referendum, I, I'm afraid I see no reason why it couldn't be true in the case of the Scottish independence referendum as well. James, under the scenario you put forward in your politics column, as you say, it wouldn't be a referendum in this Boris Johnson term at least. How long do you think it would take till the vote had to happen? Because I think all three of us would have spoken to various senior Tories on this. And I, I remember one saying to me, they, they personally, as someone who has uh, worked in Scotland, as someone who has 
uh, fought for the unionist cause in the last referendum would not want there to be a referendum until the prime minister was no longer conservative. They would not want a referendum while there was a conservative prime minister. Well, I, I, I think it, I think the referendum would, or if you adopted this strategy, I suspect the referendum would take would end up taking place kind of in the, in the beginning of the next parliament. I think you can't know who the prime minister would be on that point. I, I think that it, there is undoubtedly a problem for the union that Scottish Labour is in such dire straits and that you have had this sense that, you know, this long period of kind of unbroken Tory rule. I, I think there is also another challenge for the unionist parties, which is I think there is a sense that when you actually look at the COVID crisis, but this is used to make the case that, in, that, you know, look how well Scotland has handled this. It should be more confidence to do more on its own. I actually think the most striking thing about the COVID crisis is how similarly all the various four governments within the UK have handled it and how they've all walked into the same bear traps and ended up with the same problems. And I think when you look at Scottish education and Scottish healthcare, it is hard to argue that nationalist rule at Holyrood has led to dramatically better outcomes. In fact, the Scottish health and education are doing worse than they are than, than their English equivalents at the moment. And I think this is a this is the, the part of the problem is that the unionist side is not landing the arguments on the SNP. And that is thing I think going to require better unionist political leadership nor for the border. I think there's, you know, I think the fact that Scottish Tories have got rid of Jackson Carlaw is, is an encouraging sign. I think if Scottish Labour got rid of Richard Leonard, that would be an encouraging sign. But I also think you're right that you what you need is you need for UK political figures who come across well in Scotland to take the argument to the nationalists in Scotland too. And on that note, Alex, I think we've given James a, a decent grilling when it comes to his proposals. So what, do you, what, in your view, is the best strategy to save the union? Uh, well, I think the, the first thing that would help would be a Labour government at Westminster. Uh, and I quite see that that is quite a big ask for the current prime minister and the current administration uh, to see it in those terms. But I think that is uh, one prerequisite for a healthier and renewed unionism. I think competent government at Westminster failing that would help. That Britain's difficulties, if you like, are Scotland's opportunities, if you look at it through a nationalist lens. And so a thriving and clearly successful and contented United Kingdom is one way of putting to bed some of the discontent and grumbles that animate you know, enthusiasm for independence. It is not enough for Scotland to succeed, but Britain must be seen to be failing. And at the moment, in the midst of you know, this pandemic and the economic fallout from that, it is quite difficult to make the case for a buoyant United Kingdom that offers you know, some glad, confident future at present. And without that, you know, then the risks of independence seem somewhat smaller than they might otherwise be, even though they are, as I think we all agree, very considerable. That is 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 one thing. You know, the argument for, for the union is currently being endangered in England just as much as it is in Scotland. And and that has to change as well. I mean it's absolutely true that the you know Scottish Tories and the Scottish Labour Party need to do better in terms of taking on the SNP in terms of their, their record in government and their prospectus for independence and so on. You know, a lot of which is pretty fantastical. But at the same time the UK government has to demonstrate that it is competent and it is ready and able and willing to meet the challenges of the next 10, 20, 30 years. And at present, 
present, I'm not sure that the current government offers inspires much confidence in that in, in that respect. And, and that is uh, a fundamental weakness for unionism, too, I'm afraid. And finally, James, we'll give you the, the final word when it comes to the proposal in your column this week. What percentage chance do you give it um, getting the green light from the government? Oh, I, I, look, I think it's very low. I think it's yeah. almost certain but number 10 stick with their current strategy of saying no. I think their view is, you know, there can be no legal referendum without their, without Westminster's consent and they can't lose a referendum that they don't allow. I think the only thing that could change that is if you saw a pattern where every time the SNP requested a referendum and Westminster refused, support for independence went up and I think at that point, people might begin to realise that this strategy just risks storing up problems for the future. Thank you, James. Thank you, Alex. Finally, Andrew Watts explores whether a talky graveyard is being used for some indecent activities. To explain, he joins me along with the Reverend Fergus Butler Galley. Andrew, in this week's Spectator, you say that you've been spending quite a lot of time in graveyards recently. Why is that? Well, there was a story in the uh, local newspaper about a churchyard in Torquay, which is uh, not that far from me, uh, which was uh, had become, over the last few weeks, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, a centre for uh, people making love in public, uh, for prostitution and for drug-taking. So obviously I thought I'd better go and investigate. It seemed like a fascinating story, but then when I got there, Absolutely nothing. In some ways disappointing and perhaps in other ways relieving. Oh yes, no, I had a lovely day uh, sitting in a churchyard uh, listening to the birdsong and reading a detective story. But, but as you say, Andrew, ultimately we are hearing more in the news about people going to graveyards to show their love to one another, perhaps as one way of putting it. Do you think this is something to do with the pandemic? You write in the article that it's actually a, quite a long history of um, people going to graveyards for this reason. Yes, it, it seems to be happening more, or, or maybe we're just noticing it more. People are being a bit less discreet because there are fewer people around patrolling these places. They, they seem like better places to hide. So I think that's why we're, we're seeing it. But it, I was surprised to see how often it does happen. And I was talking to some friends about it, as I say in the article, and a couple of them said, oh, yes, I've, I've been to a churchyard when I was a teenager. There was nowhere else to go. And I started bringing up a few other friends and a lot of them, after an initial hesitation, said, oh yes, I have too. So there's more of it going on than you think, perhaps. Fergus, uh, you were recently ordained. Um, was graveyard sex a problem that you thought about at all as a trainee priest? I, I can't say it came up much at theological college as a sort of, you know, uh, a module how to sort of deal with graveyard sex. But uh, it's something that, that I suppose... A clergy are aware of all sorts of things that go on in their graveyards. The, the phrase that, when, when sort of thinking about this, the phrase that came to me was media vita in morte sumus, in the midst of life we are in death, which we use in the funeral service of the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, I suppose there's no more clear expression of the full vitality of life, shall we say, than um, sexual intercourse. And I suppose doing it among the dead is a reminder both of life and our own, own mortality, I suppose. There's something, something to be said for it in, in theological terms. But I can't say, no, it was something that we were ever taught to deal with the practical consequences of at all, really. But uh, but we know it goes on, shall we say. Andrew, I, I think we just heard a 
perhaps a rather convincing theological argument for going to a graveyard for this activity. But do you think that's the main driving reason people are going to graveyards? Because in your article, I think there could be some other perhaps practical factors that would drive particularly a younger couple to to go to their local graveyard. Well, particularly in London, there are some boroughs of London where virtually 70% of the open space is uh, devoted to churchyards. And, and they're not places that are frequented as much as parks. You don't have park ranges. You don't have children so much running around, r- running in on people. So they are, as a practical matter, a perfectly good place to go. Fergus, are there any issues in terms of people using graveyards for this purpose? Because ultimately, one would presume it's at night, few people are there. So is it a particular grievance for the church? Is it something that causes problems or are there bigger problems in terms of the use of graveyards? Well, I, I suppose there's, there's, there's two issues, aren't there? I mean, one one is the legal one. I suppose it is, it is technically outraging public decency. Um, and so uh, whether, whether the church is especially concerned, certainly the police may well be if they, if they stumble across an in flagrante sort of incident in the midst of the tombs. I, I suppose there is an issue of respect for the dead. There is the problem that if someone's there to lay flowers on their granny's grave or something, to then come across a couple, so to speak, is, is, is hardly likely to help the mourning process. That said, you know, churchyards have always had a funny legal status. You know, the curtilage of the church and, and the churchyard are the legal possession of the incumbent. So they, they occupy a very strange place in, in English law and have always been places where slightly odd things happen. You know, you think of Southwark, the area around what is now Southwark Cathedral, uh, was under the specific possession of the Bishop of Winchester, uh, and was known uh, in medieval times as a, as a great hub for prostitution. In York, the area around the Minster had very specific laws and liberties. So churchyards and the areas immediately around churches have always had a funny legal status, um, and that we still have hangovers of that. So I suppose if I was if I was being a sort of romantic historian, I'd want to draw on those and say, well, the church has always tolerates everything from from beer making to print making to if needs be sex within within the kind of shadows of our great churches but i i suppose there is that issue of taste isn't there and and maybe in in the sort of era of electric light and, and public lighting perhaps going somewhere dark and dingy is really what people are going for and there is then the issue of do you really want to um go and visit as i say a relative's grave and find shall we shall we say the paraphernalia of someone's night of night of passion there the next day? I, I think probably not. The graveyards that people visit tend to be the older ones because they're more romantic and Victorian and have been closed to uh, new graves for 100 years. Certainly the one in Torquay was like that. You don't get people going to, you, you know, those modern graveyards which are just huge ranks of uh, graves all in a row. Because that's that's not sexy. There's something more sexy about kind of crumbling crumbling stones and things like that um, than than there necessarily is uh, about, as you say, those great sallied ranks of the dead. I suppose there's always the problem of ghosts and things. You know, there's the great tradition of the of the churchyard grim. This idea that there's a um, a, a, a spectre of a dog is normally what it's considered to be that haunts graveyards and stops immoral behaviour. So I don't know whether anyone's found the, the feel of a dog on their leg, so to speak, when in the midst of all this, whether the grim is taking its revenge. I suppose that would be the main risk with older churchyards. 
Andrew, Fergus previously was talking about the romantic history to a degree, but some of the history of sex and graveyards probably is, is lower on the romantic spectrum, particularly if you look at prostitution and graveyards. What's the history there? Well, the earliest reference I can find is in the Roman period, there were various ranks of prostitutes. Best prostitutes would go to parties, go to courtesans. You're the lowest of the low used to hang around in funerary monuments. And actually, their day job would often be to be professional mourners. And then in the evening, they would go around the uh, cemeteries uh, attracting trade. And that seems to have carried on. Certainly, a lot of cemetery prostitution uh, at the time of the Black Death... Uh, and then there's a fascinating um, memoir of Naples just after liberation, where the cemetery was the makeout spot for the entire city. And it was very embarrassing if you sort met someone on the way there because you know that they, they were going out for only one thing. Now, just looking, I suppose, forward a bit, Fergus, I wondered... In Andrew's article, he writes about the idea of an explosion of sex in churchyards might be a tabloid invention. Certainly, he didn't see much on his own visit. And actually, perhaps the bigger problem from speaking to those visiting the area related to drugs and antisocial behaviour. Do you agree with that? And how are people in your position advised to deal with these problems? Absolutely. I, I think I think that conclusion was 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 quite right. And 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 you know Andrew's. Uh, sense that, that there is yes a romanticization and, and, and you know a good tabloid story in sex in the graveyard but no one really wants to hear about you know the syringes and the spoons and things that we find on a on a daily basis certainly that's been my experience and, you know we have a churchyard here in the parish church of liverpool which was closed to burials you know around the time of the cholera epidemics in the 1830s 40s and 50s but has been a burial site since since the black death but, you know, certainly I have never stumbled across of a morning anyone in the sort of writhings of passion. I have stumbled across people who are in a much, much darker and much, much sort of nastier place as a result of drugs and stumble across the paraphernalia, etc. And it's interesting, we have a large cemetery here in Liverpool, St. James's Burial Ground, now closed to burials, but huge monuments, great Victorian thing, catacombs and things like that. And originally, um, I was speaking to some police the other day, and they had originally been asked to patrol it because it has appeared as a good place to have sex on swinger websites, which apparently exist to sort of, you know, in the same way that TripAdvisor uh, exists to, to recommend the best spots. And, and this was considered one. However, when they went, it was far more a case of mopping up the, the sort of aftermath of, of people in really quite dire states in terms of uh, drug abuse and, 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 and as a place to sleep. So, so I suppose that that is the sort of the darker side of all this, that if if you're going to a place that is quiet and out of the way and among the dead, you may well be among people uh, who, who are also only clinging to life by their fingernails, really, uh, in terms of their sort of addictions and the state that they've come to. We certainly have found that to be the case here. Andrew, having spent several hours in a graveyard, as you document in this piece, do, do you think you'll be back? Do you think this is a, something you're going to do more regularly? Yes, it, it was lovely and quiet and a very good place to read. Well, I was in Torquay, so obviously I was reading in Agatha Christie. But it's much quieter than a park, and everyone has this sort of respectful uh, attitude. And, and just to bring this podcast to a close, um, I wondered, I mean, and it's only what you want to share with us, but what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done in a graveyard, Fergus? <laughs> um, gosh, this is sort of that Theresa May running through wheat kind of question, isn't it? Um the naughtiest thing, oh, well, I certainly have, 
as as a as a clergyman, I'm meant to be a kind of bastion of Christian charity and uh, goodness towards all. And I must say, the the wickedest thing I have ever done in a in a churchyard is certainly to curse the people who I have have been there the night before. We are, as I said, in the centre of Liverpool, and often Hindus and Stagdus finish their evenings in uh, the uh, churchyard here. So so. I suppose walking across with a kind of deflated sort of novelty uh, penis thing that they've had for a Hindu, bringing it to the bin and, and in my thoughts of my heart, cursing whoever put it there. I suppose that's probably the wickedest thing. And Andrew, same to you. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, th- I think it's hinted at in my article. We'll leave it there. That's it for this week. You can read all the pieces discussed in the issue together with Andrew Sullivan's diary, Matthew Paris on the future of liberal conservatism and Will Heaven on the dissolution of a monastery. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. of the spectator in print and online for just 12 pounds and we'll give you a 20 pound amazon gift voucher absolutely free go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher